Good morning. My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Well, we're going to continue our series on our mission. Threefold. One, to encounter Christ, what it means to encounter Jesus. Two, what it means to experience community. And then, what it means to extend the kingdom. So for the last two weeks, we have been concentrating on encountering Jesus and experiencing community. Today is the third leg, what it means to extend the kingdom. And the passage from which I'm going to preach is a little bit different in its orientation. It's not your usual go out and minister to people passage, but I think it will speak to you nonetheless. Turn with me over to the book of Genesis, chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8, we are going to look at verses 20 through 22, and then bleeding into chapter 9, verse 1. Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, and then 9, verse 1. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal, and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have, verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Lord, help as we study. The title of the message is Extend the Kingdom, Upreach and Outreach. Extend the Kingdom, Upreach and Outreach. Context. Noah has obeyed God and built a boat, a very big boat, 450-foot boat. He and his sons were the, were the construction team that put it together. God gave the architectural blueprint and said, do it like this. In this boat uh, were to be kept his family and them safe from the flood, along with a representative sample of the animals of the earth so that God could repopulate the planet, both in ecosystem, with animal life, and with human beings. And Noah did a good job. He prepared the ark. It took him 120 years, we believe, Genesis 6 says. God says, I will, I will strive with man, but 120 years. That didn't mean that man only had that long to live in terms of age. It meant that that's how long he was going to endure with man's wickedness until he brought judgment to the earth. 120 years is a long time. Now people lived a long time back then. I mean, when Noah got in the boat, he was about 600 years old. That, that's, that's, that's some age on them. And there, there are a lot of reasons why people lived longer back then than they do today, and I don't have time to go into all of them, but it has nothing to do with the fact that they counted years shorter. It has a lot to do with the climate and the way the earth was, was constructed <clears throat> before the flood. And then right after the flood, man's lifespan, an individual man's lifespan, decreased significantly and proportionately to the new climate that he had to, to dwell in. And um, suffice it to say that it was a good thing that God 
said, I'm going to give you 120 years because Noah had it. If he had told us that, we wouldn't have had it. But it took him a while, and he built this huge boat. And when it was time for the flood to come, and God was judging the earth, he was judging the earth in Genesis 6 because man, it says, man's thoughts were on evil continually. That's all he thought about. When he woke up, he thought, how can I steal my neighbor's donkey? How can I steal his wife? How can I take his property? Evil continually. God said, I can't fix it. I can't fix it other than to start over. And it was a sad commentary on man's condition, but it is some way of of describing how, how man, it's indicative of describing how man got there to begin with. And we have to look at the way man was. Adam was messed up. He blew it. He had the opportunity of a lifetime to live in paradise forever and to allow his descendants to do the same. Yet he sinned, he and Eve. And as a result, death came. And death came through Adam, meaning it came to Adam and Eve and it came through Adam and Eve. And Adam could then only produce who he was. The principle was that like would beget like. So an apple tree would beget apples, and in the apples would be the seeds that would beget other apple trees that then would beget apples. Never has an apple beget seeds, had seeds that then turned into lemon trees. Whatever was the, 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 whatever the, the fruit was and the seed and the fruit turned out to be exactly like the fruit when it came into fruition. Well, Adam was a sinner, so all he could do is produce sinners. Sad thing. And this is why, as evidence, mankind is really not good in getting better. I realize that we want to think that, and it makes us all feel better if we have a positive outlook on life. But if we don't understand the condition, we'll never apply the correct remedy. And the evidence of knowing that mankind is not good and not getting better is how people come out of the womb. If you're a parent, you understand what I'm about to say. You never have to teach your child to be selfish. You never have to teach him the word mine. I don't know how they learn it. Mama, Dada, mine. (laughs) It just comes to them. We do have to teach them to love. We do have to teach them to share. We do have to teach them to be kind. Why is that? If they were good and getting better, it seems that the generations have been going long enough whereby kids would come out different, naturally. But none of them do. And then without the restraint of law or a change of heart, they become adults like that. And they mess up the planet. And that's what the planet was in Noah's day. A people with unrestrained evil, exercising it to the fullest on a regular basis. God said, I got to stop this. And he could only find one man who was relatively righteous enough to save, along with his kids. And he said, Noah, build me this boat, and I'm going to save the world through you. And he did so. Noah was in that boat for nine months. Nine months. It rained 40 days and 40 nights. But all that water, it took a long time for it to to recede. And it says that the water actually covered the tops of the mountains. 
And it took a long time for it to go and be where it should be as it landed on the earth. And so Noah and his family, his sons, his wife and their wives were living in that ark for nine months. And the ark was, was really a zoo. It was a zoo. There were representative animals from all of the animal kingdom. And they had the genetic makeup to make up all the varied different species in the genre. So I don't think there was a donkey and an Appaloosa horse and then a thoroughbred and then a quarter horse. I think there were just two horses. And then those horses had enough genetic in them, genetic makeup, that, to make up all the different styles and, and various species that we understand, uh, subspecies of horse. Um, there was one set of cattle, or actually it says that there were two uh, there were seven pairs of clean animals, so sheep, cattle, deer, but there was one pair of unclean, horses, pigs, gorillas, all that. And these animals were inside the ark so God could repopulate the earth when, it, when, when Noah came out. And I, I, I like zoos. I, I was going to be a vet, veterinarian before I was going to be a dentist. And obviously I became neither. But I was going to be a veterinarian. And they have a very honorable profession. And I loved animals growing up. Loved animals growing up. Still love them. Eh, but I have them in the right slot. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people love animals so much they divorce their spouse and get a dog. Don't love animals like that. Not like that. And people like animals a lot. <laughs> Oh, you're going to have to forgive me for this. But people like animals a whole lot, sometimes more than people, simply because animals don't talk. Oh, if they could talk. You'd send, them, you'd send Fido to the pound in a minute, in a minute. They don't know any manners. They don't know what kindness looks like. And so if you are 30 minutes late for their meal, that's what that is. That's what that is. Anyway, can you imagine living in a zoo with only one window? That's all they had in the ark is one window. Most zoos are outside for a reason. Arid. You need fresh air in order to enjoy the atmosphere of the wild, the natural habitat of these animals. They were in an enclosed environment. Can you imagine the smell? Oh, my goodness. You ever been to the ape house at the zoo? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's cool seeing the primates do what they do. Seem to be pretty smart. God made them pretty smart. But your, your olfactory system just is offended as soon as you open the door, and all you're trying to do is get to the other side, get out the other door, because it stinks so bad. Nine, live there for nine months. Wow. That's where Noah was. And we come to this moment here. Noah exits the ark. Oh, he's so happy. He is so happy. He's happy that he's saved. He's happy that his family is saved. But he's also happy that he gets to breathe fresh air. And as he walks out, he does something. And there are two things upon which I wish to concentrate. One, what we build. And then how we be. How we be. Forgive the poor English, but it's going to fit. The first thing Noah built was not, was not architecture to structure his life for prosperity. Lord, I'm going to build my family a house so that we can, can live well, and I, I, I'm going to build a garden so that we can eat well, 
and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to build a, a lifestyle that allows for the progeny that come from us to enjoy all the things that we construct. I'm going to build my marriage. I'm going to build a greater relationship with my kids. I'm going to build some things. Now that we're outside, we have a fresh start. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a new lease on life. This is great. And there's nothing wrong with concentrating on those things. In fact, there's a lot right. But it's all about what you do first, not just what you do. It's about what you do first, not just what you do. You know, boy, we can learn from Noah. The gratefulness that he, he exhibited to God is tangible in what he thought needed to be built first. And it says he built an altar. An altar. That altar was so that he could offer to God something. It says he sacrificed some of the animals. And something about that altar allowed God to notice some things. Now, it's not that God didn't notice Noah. Surely he did. He had been speaking to him. This is well after he exited the ark, meaning well into his exit, if you will. And so if you look in the prior verses, God had given, given him some instruction about how things ought to go. But Noah's response was first to sacrifice to God. That was the best expression of his gratefulness. What we do here should never be minimized. How you lift your hands in worship, how you sing, how you concentrate on God, how you give Him the fruit of your life on a regular basis, how you offer to Him your lips of thanksgiving, what it means to give your undivided attention to the Lord for one hour both to worship Him and to listen from Him. Oh, don't ever sleep on that. And I beg you, when you come, do your best not just to do the clock in thing. Engage. Because something of your worship seems to attract God when you do it right. He had already spoken with Noah. He knew Noah was out. But it says that when Noah began to offer to God and God smelled the sacrifice, the aroma just went up, it it ascended to him, God did some things. He responded to Noah's sacrifice. Now today, we're not about killing animals and doing a spiritual barbecue. Like, you know, I I don't want to demean it. That's that's probably a little too lax in my description of it. But hear me. You know what a barbecue smells like. It it, it attracts your attention. And that's the indication that that, that God was trying to give, that his attention was attracted by the aroma that was going up. Well, everything about worship in the Old Testament was typified by what was ascending. So the priests, when they went into the sanctuary or the, the tabernacle or the house of God, there was a place called the altar of incense upon which was to be burned incense. And that incense then would rise as an aroma and it says that God would be pleased with that. Now, it's not so much that God is literally smelling the smoke and getting happy. What he is doing is is sensing the sincerity of worship and the sacrifice behind it and saying, that makes me happy. And there is something about your sincere worship done in integrity, not just to cover up your sin. Help me. We're not talking about the worship that you say, this is a makeup. 
Because I messed up last night, I need to give you something this morning. If you did mess up last night, please do what you're doing and give them something this morning. But that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is worship that comes from a thankful heart that is full of integrity. Oh, it's not that God won't hear the other, but he takes special, special notice and gives special attention to this kind. Worship like this captures him. Thank you, Lord, for my salvation. Thank you for what you've done in my family. Thank you for all that I don't even know you've done. I just want you to know I am a grateful man for your goodness to me. And here is my sacrifice. Here is my financial offering. Here are the fruit of my lips. Here is my mind totally devoted to you. I am yours, a living and holy sacrifice. You said that would be pleasing to you. That's what it says in Romans 12. Present yourself to God as a living and holy sacrifice, pleasing and acceptable to him. That's what Noah was doing. And what did God do? What was his response? Not only did he smell it, he said some stuff. He said, um, you know what? I'm not going to curse the earth again. And, and I'm not going to destroy every living thing any, ever again. That, that, that'll, never, that'll never happen. Do you know that your upreach will have impact out there? How you worship here impacts the world. The entire world. Do you know that the world is probably more messed up today than it was in Noah's day? Simply by the fact that there are countless, to the nth degree, more people who are thinking only about wickedness. And to not believe that we deserve judgment is naive at best. We deserve exactly what Noah's generation got. We aren't any better. And you could argue we are much worse. We have access to worse all the time. And we take advantage of it. But why aren't we destroyed? Why aren't we trying to gasp for air being 100 feet under water? Because Noah worshipped. God smelled it. And he said, successive generations that come from you will never experience this. One man's worship we are still benefiting from. When you upreach, it's the first level of outreach. Providing benefit to our community, to your family, to your extended relatives, to your friends, to your co-workers. Worship well. It's not just about you. But God does stuff through you. Worship well. And your upreach will have an impact on the outreach. And then God gave Noah a reminder of the blessing. It's not just about building altars, but it's about being fruitful. We're called to be fruitful. Jesus said that branches that, 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 that are in him, John 15, where he talks about him being the vine and we are the branches and the Father is the vine dresser. He said branches that 
are in me and bear no fruit, cut off. God's interested in your fruitfulness. We are called to be fruitful. And here, the Lord told Noah, now, I'm going to reiterate to you what I told Adam and Eve because you are the second version of them. Your family. You're all that's on the planet. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now, this is a natural a natural exhortation for a natural process. Meaning, God is exhorting him about his physical ability to produce children so that the earth can, can have more human beings. So he's speaking about a natural process and he's speaking naturally. But Jesus talked about how important it was in his own blessing Meaning that when God made Adam and Eve, it says he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. This is the second iteration of that blessing to Noah. Jesus gave the same kind of thing, yet in different words in Matthew 28. He says in verses 18 through 20, as I paraphrase, go into all the world and preach this gospel, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you always, teaching them everything that I've commanded you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. What he told the disciples is, spiritually now, be fruitful and multiply. Go out and take this message and produce sons and daughters for, for, of my father. Help people understand what it means to get born again. Now, I don't want to get, get away from the fact that if you are married and you, you, you know, are thinking about having kids, have as many as God wants you to. Now, I know you're hearing it from a pastor who's got seven. Got it. We have six naturally, and we adopted one. And I'm not trying to invoke my experience on you. You have to do whatever God tells you to do. But never is selfishness a good grid through which you make any decisions. So how you decide how many children you should have should not be based on how comfortable it will make you. Have whatever God wants you to have. Whatever multiply is interpreted to be for you, do that naturally. Once you are married, 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 do that. But then we get an extra dimension of blessing. We get to take this gospel out to people who don't know anything. And God wants us to be fruitful and multiply in this way. We are to extend the kingdom by preaching the gospel to people who know him not. Using our lives as a testimony of what he can do for them. You may not know all the scriptures, so we are going to have classes that help you understand how to present the gospel cogently to somebody. But if you don't know, you do have a story, and you need to make that story known. And you need to have a life that backs up the story so that your life does not deny everything that's coming out of your mouth. There needs to be consistency in who you are and what you say. So that what you say has greater power and impact. Jesus said that I want you to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you in Acts chapter 1. That you might be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. God wants to do that for you. Make you his witness. The evidence of his resurrection. And in order to do that with credibility... You've got to have 
a great degree of integrity in your life that backs up what you say. But when you do that, oh, it makes it so much easier for people not to drink from two different streams whenever they see you. One stream, pure, consistent, constant, not perfect, though we strive for perfection. But that is not the requirement that allows you to preach, allows you to minister. Consistency. We are called to be fruitful. Your worship has impact. Your upreach allows God the privilege of making sure that people out there are, are not going to be judged for their last sin, staying the curse, holding back the tide of consequence. That's what your worship does. And we need to do it with power. Secondly, we need to take whatever blessing God has given us with presentation and make it known to a number of people so that they can come to the knowledge of the truth. This gospel is the best message in the world. There is nothing better than letting people know that they do not have to suffer the consequences of their sin, that they don't have to be judged for it, that somebody has paid that price already and not only has allowed them to get free, but allowed them to live life the way they were intended. It's not just about being released from bad, but it's coming into good. It's coming out of bondage and into a promised land. God wants you to live great. There is no better life than the life he intended you to live. And when you begin to serve him with all of your heart, accepting what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you, when you allow him to sit on the throne of your heart and, and, and begin to do what he says, oh, life changes for the better. There is no place like being in the middle of God's will. No place. Safety, power, affirmation. You get up every day saying, I'm right. Oh, we're not talking about an arrogant right better than your right. I am right with Almighty God, and I love that it makes me more relevant to heal and fix the world's problems. That kind of rightness makes you a servant rather than holier than thou. And you go about beginning to apply the balm of Scripture every place you see a wound. You become the, the healing agent and the fixer of all problems. That's what we are called to do. Be fruitful and multiply like that. Take the life of God that's on the inside of you and replicate it every place you go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I love you. I thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your grace. Empower us to worship you well in thanksgiving for being saved and to be fruitful in our lives so that we can see Jesus Christ receive the benefit for the sacrifice he gave. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless your church. You're the best.